2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 13 through verse 18. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I want to ask you a question. In your Christian life and journey, can you think in your mind of a time that you have been moved powerfully in your heart by something that you saw, something that was genuinely moving you, that was part of your Christian faith? Perhaps you saw someone come to faith in Christ. Perhaps you had a meaningful conversation with someone where they said something that changed your life. Perhaps you were moved under the preaching of God's word. Obviously, we've all been moved in terms of conversion where we've come to faith in Christ. But since then, don't you have some mountain peak moments where certain things happened that were forever etched in your thinking and mind and memory? I have one of those. I was studying this passage this week and on Friday, something came to mind, a a memory that was so powerful it moved me to tears. I I was thinking about in 1998 when I was candidating at the Bible Church of Little Rock and just showing up uh, first just by myself to that church just to see what was going on and I went to the Sunday evening service and the main portion of the service was given to a young lady who was brought up front and her father was standing in, in support right next to her. And she began to tearfully confess her sin in utter transparency to the congregation. And she was confessing that she had become pregnant outside of wedlock, that she had been part of a a relationship that had sexual immorality, and this was what was happening, and she was going to have the baby and was repenting to the church and seeking the church's forgiveness. Well, after... That time, she sat down, and I thought the preacher was going to get up and preach a sermon. Instead, he opened the Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, and he read these words. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so, that, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, So, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. He just explained in a few words that Paul was encouraging the church at Corinth to re-embrace a sinner. Saying that the guilt of the sin was enough punishment. Now it's time to reaffirm our love for him. And he said in the same way, let's have this young lady, this young woman come up front and let's reaffirm our love for her. And without any extra instruction, almost spontaneously, there was this movement in the room where everybody lined up. And for the next hour, one by one, people came up and just embraced this gal and reaffirmed her and loved her and enveloped her with love. And it was just moving and it filled my heart with joy as it would had you had been there, had you been there. It was just a powerful time. And I was sitting there. New to the church, not even part of it yet, as an outside observer, but it was awkward for me to stay in my seat. And so I had to get up and get in line and introduce myself and encourage her in the Lord, just saying, I'm a new brother in Christ to you, but I really appreciate what you said. And I affirm your confession is true and, and you are affirmed as forgiven. It's complete restoration. It was powerful restoration. You know what it was? It was the gospel in action. 
was the gospel on display. And the story didn't end there. Judy and I came to the church. As you know, we stayed there for 11 years. And part of those 11 years was our participation in her life. She came to a singles group, a singles Bible study that we began. I was teaching the Bible to her and we were singing worship um, with her and sort of in community with her. And we watched her heal and we watched her grow in grace and her service in the church as she was um, with child and then ultimately had that child and all of it was sort of um, covered in grace. And then we watched her develop a relationship with a young man in the Bible study, in the context of the local church. Then I found myself primarily counseling them over a year's time, counseling them and giving my heart to them and, and watching both of them grow in the gospel together. And then I married them. That was my first wedding I ever performed as a 26-year-old or 27-year-old. It was this powerful time. And then I watched him fall in love with this gal that, that was in his family, this, this new daughter. And I worked through a process of counseling with them as he adopted her so that he became her adopted daddy. I spoke to them last night. Called them up and, you know, whatever time it was in Little Rock, who cares? They were still awake. And, uh, you know, we just kind of handed the phone around. And it was just one of those times where I was sort of seeking their permission to share this story. But more importantly, it was a way to bond with them, to connect with them, and to know that they're doing well. And they are. They've had a couple other kids and they've adopted one more. So they're a large family, and they're a trophy of God's grace and a picture of confession, repentance, and restoration. That's what they are. That's the goal of the gospel. And we're going to be talking about a topic this morning from this passage that is called church discipline. And that often brings a negative connotation with it, doesn't it? Public discipline. But really, maybe we should call it instead biblical restoration, because the goal of ever addressing anyone's sin is to restore them in the gospel, is to bring them into clear fellowship, and to promote holiness and safety within the church. I was reminded of Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Put another way, if you hide or cover your sin, God will uncover it. If you uncover your sin in transparent confession, what will God do? He will cover it. He will grace the repentant sinner. Then they become a trophy of grace. Verses 13 through 15, they line out a path of restoration for people who were in sin in this local assembly, this church in Thessalonica. There were people here who were out of control. He calls them people who were idle, people who were in extreme laziness as a pattern in their life, so much so that they weren't working a job anymore. They were instead abusing church members, living on their finances in the name of Christ, and creating a bad testimony in the church. They were busybodies. They were, they were using their busy time instead of working a job to create fractures within this local body and to taint the testimony of this local church. They didn't see work as something that is redemptive, something that the Lord has designed for us to do. And just as a review of last week, I was making the point that our work ethic tells a whole lot about who we are. And how we perceive work and what we think about our jobs and our vocation has a lot to do with our attitude in terms of working a job and seeing it as redemptive, as a calling. Talked about how you either see your job as a curse or a calling. Remember last week, Genesis 2.15, how Adam was put in the garden before the fall to work it, to work the garden and to keep it. Ecclesiastes, it talks about how work is something we should find joy in as it's handed to us from God. Ecclesiastes 2 and 3, we should take pleasure in it as a gift to man. Work is a calling. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24, it talks about 
how whatever calling you find yourself in, see it as an assignment from the Lord. Verse 17, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Do you see your life that way? And that's what these people were not doing. They didn't see work as a calling. They didn't see work as a theater of influence, something where we are salt and light in the world, Matthew 5 says, to walk properly before outsiders, 1 Thessalonians 4, as a way to give glory to God, Colossians chapter 3. talks about not working for eye service as people pleasers, but from sincerity of the heart, fearing the Lord, how we fear God and give him glory in everything we do. You say, you don't know my job, you don't know my boss. I don't, but I know your ultimate boss. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we serve. And these people didn't get that. And it became serious. It became so serious that that Paul was saying, listen, there needs to be drastic measures taken with these certain few in the church. We talked about last week, just as a way to kind of recapture verses 6 through 12, several principles, several questions, eight questions, in fact, that sort of diagnose where your heart is regarding work. And that's what Paul is doing in this text. Look at verse 6. I ask the question, are you a godly influence? He says in verse 6, by way of command in the name of Jesus that you keep away from a brother who's walking in idleness. He's actually saying create distance from that negative influence in the church. There are rare exceptions, but 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says bad company corrupts good morals. So you are who you hang around and they will sort of influence you. Your friends will influence you to become like the people that you're around. doesn't take much to figure out what you're becoming. Just look at the friends that are closest to, to you. Number two, second question. What is your reputation? Verse 7. Paul is putting himself out there and he's saying, look, imitate us. Imitate our missions crew that came and established your church. We worked night and day. We were not superhuman. We were just missionaries with you. And we were trying to make disciples as an example. Number three, do you have integrity? Are you the same on the inside as you are on the outside? Are you the genuine thing? And that's what Paul is making the case for in verse eight. Verse eight, he says, we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. We had, we had a good reputation. We had good integrity and we didn't eat anyone's bread. We weren't a chief. He was a chief. Remember, he was writing this letter from Corinth and being accused at the church in Corinth of being a robber, someone who was a thief in the church, 2 Corinthians eleven eight. Then lastly, are you, well, fourthly, are you driven? In verse 8, he says, we, we, we toiled, we labored, we worked night and day. Three work words in a row where he's saying he was driven. And then verse 9, are you a servant? He's saying he was a servant. He didn't, he didn't demand payment for giving the gospel, is what verse 8 says. Or verse 9 says. Verse 9 says, it was not because we do not have the right. And he was talking about how he could have received food and payment from the church because he was ministering the word of God as a missionary. It wasn't that he didn't have the right to do that, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. And what he was saying in essence is he did not, he did not receive money that he could have demanded. First Corinthians nine fourteen. those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But Paul was willing to forego this payment. He was serving. Number six, do you sacrifice? Now, where I'm coming from here in verse 10 is Paul said, listen, if you're not willing to work, you shouldn't eat. Now, where is sacrifice in that? The sacrifice is Paul's willingness to sacrifice the relationship he had with this church by laying down a biblical principle. And it was something that he had said ongoingly while he was with them. If you're not willing to work, you shouldn't eat. I mean, he probably was thinking about Proverbs 26, a, uh, Proverbs 16, 26. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on, right? If you're hungry enough, you might get off, go and work. Is what the writer of Proverbs says. Number seven, are you making the right investment? You're either a busybody or you're busy at work. Look at verse 11. 
He said that he had heard that some were walking in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. There's a play on word there, words there. And I referenced last week 1 Timothy 5.13, young women in the church who shouldn't be put on the widow's list for support in the church. Why? Because they were learning to be idlers. They were lazy. They were going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Do you see how this is a, a more serious issue Then at first glance, you might say laziness going all the way to church discipline or separation or we're trying to shame these people. What what is this all about? Well, these people were out of control. These people were the next level of sinning in this way. Number eight, my last question, is your life stable? Look at verse 12. He's saying that he's encouraging and commanding in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for these people to work quietly and to earn their own living, to take care of their own household, to be responsible for their immediate and extended family, and to do it in a quiet way, which means a stable way. Are you a person that's willing to work hard enough to earn a stable income for your household? And if you've ever seen a household that does not have steady income, you know that it's fraught with all kinds of temptations and instability and perhaps disaster. Right? And Paul is saying, look, we can't have that in our church. We need to encourage each other to work jobs and to be faithful and to provide and earn your own living. This runs a lot deeper. These eight questions run a lot deeper than just how to have a good work ethic, right? This wasn't just a pep talk that Paul was giving or that I was teaching on last week. This is talking about hearts that are in need of confrontation, people in need of restoration. It's transcending whether or not you're an effective employee. It's whether or not you should be in good standing in the church is what Paul is talking about. This is a test of fellowship because these people were unruly. They were dangerous Christians. And it brings us to verses 13 through 15 where we're going to talk about biblical restoration, or church discipline. But even before we look at these verses, I have one more area that we need to look at, and that is Matthew 18. And that's because you can't go or you should not go to a passage in the New Testament that talks about church discipline or biblical restoration without first referencing or studying through Jesus' core teaching on biblical restoration, church discipline. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, talk about this. And no doubt was in Paul's mind as he wrote these words in 2 Thessalonians. Matthew 18, I have some points up on the screen as well for us. Verses 15 through 20 is the broader context of church discipline. And they outline for us four steps. And they move from very private to very public. Step number one. Step number one is the most private step, and we find it in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Scenario is simple. You're sinned against. Someone does something sinful towards you. Your relationship is in disrepair. And so it is your obligation, it is something we are commanded to do, to go to that person and tell that person his fault between you and him alone. So there's privacy, there's protection in the gospel. This is something that is very private, but should be very pervasive in the church. Galatians 6.1 talks about this, we'll look there later on, but how... If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should go to that person in a spirit of restoration to restore that person. It's in the context of bearing one another's burdens. As quickly as you would bear somebody's burden who's struggling or suffering, you should also, with equal quickness, go to someone in need who has sin in their life that is not being repented of. Something that you see that's glaring that they do not see that they need to see and that you could show them. That's step one. Step two, more public. It gets more public. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
It's more public. Now it's a group going. Now it might just be one other person or maybe two other uh, people who are going with you and sitting down with this sinning brother or sister where you're talking through the person's issue. And some people say, well, you can only take one or two other people who are aware of that sin already, and I would sort of disagree. I think that this principle of Jesus is reflecting back to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, where it talks about how people's sins in court are established by by the mouth or testimony of two or three witnesses. Let every fact be confirmed. Are you aware of that teaching? And that is mirrored in this process of church discipline where you're basically taking some other people along when you're talking to someone about their sin and saying, listen, will you help me discern this scenario? Will, will, will we find wisdom in the multitude of counselors here as we come as a group to talk to a sinful believer, a person that is erring in judgment, that needs to be brought back in line with the truth? Well, if that person Rejects, then step three comes up, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is where it becomes public. Public. Formal and public. And I think a lot of people say, man, why in the world would you ever have to take something before the whole church? Isn't that harsh? Isn't that unloving to... Splash somebody's name across a crowd of people when they're already hurting because of their sin? Well, it could be cast in that light, but it shouldn't be because bringing this level of formal accountability is a way to call a multitude of people to pursue a person trapped in their sin that needs to be restored. Now, the lady that I mentioned earlier who was confessing her sins... That lady was not under church discipline. She wasn't. Because she was freely confessing and openly confessing something that the church needed to hear. And you know what it was? It was a beautiful thing. It was a glorious moment for the church and for her life. And that is a picture of what biblical restoration looks like. When the whole church knows about it and all of a sudden someone's coming in and they say, you know what, I give, I've come to the end of myself. I've got nowhere to go but up, right? I've hit rock bottom and I've, I need the church again. And, and more people know about this and it stung. It turned me inside out on myself, but now I'm repenting and I'm being restored. And it's a beautiful celebration. And we'll be looking more at that as we go. Step four. Step four is where the sin remains public. It remains public. What do I mean by that? Well, it's where someone continues to be unrepentant. And ultimately, the elders of the church, the leadership of the church, discerns this lack of repentance, and it's where you actually ask someone to leave the assembly until they would repent. It's for the protection of the flock. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's so that a person isn't poised to remain in their sins, and for their own good, they need to be taken out of the fellowship so that they can realize what they're losing because of their sin. They need to realize the fellowship meant more to them than they ever realized until they didn't have it anymore. And that's what step four is. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We're going to harmonize this with verse 15 of 2 Thessalonians 3, that we obviously still see them as a brother in Christ. We, we hold hope out for them as a brother or sister in Christ who's in rebellion, but we are... We are keeping them from the privileges of a local church, the Lord's Supper, baptism, the regular preaching of the word of God, the one another ministry and the relationships that you find in community. We're starving a person of those things so that they will go, oh, how I want to come back. Now, what's happening behind the scenes? Behind the scenes is verses 18 through 20 in chapter 18, Matthew 18. We see what we're supposed to do in verses 15 through 17. And verses 18 through 20 show us what God is doing in the midst of church discipline. 
The reason these verses are here, by the way, is to show the seriousness of what is going on when we're trying to restore someone back to fellowship. God is working all the while. Look at verse 18 in Matthew 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's stop there. You know what's going on? When you find yourself confronting somebody about a sin and they are digging their heels in and unwilling to repent, that lack of repentance behind the scene is part of the Lord's work in that person's heart where that person is bound in that sin. And then when the process continues on, if the person begins to open up and say, you know what, I've come to the end of myself and I need the Lord again and I, I want to own my sin and you've called my bluff and I, I, I can't take it anymore. That's the Lord behind the scenes loosing a person's heart. That's the binding and loosing. And I don't know if you've ever been a part of these scenarios, but they're just gut-wrenching, right? They're just awful. Where, where you see the sin and it's so glaring and so obvious and you see the damage that it's causing in their life or in their family's lives or in the church and you call a person and they continue to rationalize it away and say let's not deal with it or it's not really that big a deal but this window into what is happening behind the scenes shows us the significance of how serious the Lord takes church discipline and how serious he is about the holiness in the local church that needs to be maintained Verse 19, and again, I say to you, if two, or, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This is talking specifically still about church discipline. This isn't talking about just having a serious next level prayer meeting because two of you gathered together. And, you know, it's like we're agreeing on something and so magically it's going to happen. No, it's the idea that in church discipline, when two or three are, are working with someone to bring them to restoration, to get them to see the gospel and how they need to repent. When you're doing that, the father is uniquely involved in heaven. He's doing it behind the scenes. In verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's Jesus Christ saying, I will promise a special presence. I will be there with you through something that is this very difficult thing. You ever been through it? You might be sitting here listening to Matthew 18 and thinking, man, I know that there is something that I need to respond to in my own life. There's someone who's a straying lamb. One from the 99 has strayed away, and I need to go to that person. Perhaps the Lord is prompting you to do that, and you need to respond. You need to seek someone out who needs to be restored, or perhaps you need to be restored. And this process maybe strikes fear in your heart, but maybe it's the Lord's way of sobering you towards repentance. These steps here in Matthew 18, they are in the back of Paul's mind as he wrote verses 13 through 15. But verses 13 through 15 in 2 Thessalonians 3, back there now, this, this is not a formula for church discipline as much as an application of church discipline to a specific need and scenario. The way church discipline typically plays out is different for different scenarios. Um, one size doesn't fit all with biblical restoration or church discipline, in other words, because we're dealing with people, and people are varied up, right? People are different, one person to another. So one step might take six months or a year, or it might take three days or three hours, and you, you just have to sort of be flexible with that. And though the process in Matthew 18 is precise and objective, the application is a little bit more subjective into how these steps are applied, and so we see that in verses 13 through 15. We find each step either indirectly or directly active in what Paul says. No matter how messy it gets, it's still there. All right, for our outline this morning, what I want us to see is four steps toward restoration, which is also called church discipline. Step number one, go alone to restore your brother or sister. 
We already said that step for Matthew 18, but I'm going to find it here in verse 13. This is the most private step. Paul says, as for you brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Paul is very concerned that this church follow through. He knows that there are going to be people who are lazy, who are going to just basically turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to what Paul has written in his epistle. And he's saying, look, don't grow weary over this scenario. It's going to be exhausting. It's going to be hard. But you need to be ready to do good. Now remember, back then, sort of as I'm teaching the word of God to you right now, when a letter from Paul would show up, the messenger would stand with the letter and just read it publicly to the church as it would be assembled all together. Now, they would rewrite the letter and pass it around, and it would become cyclical. But, but in, in the main, because you didn't have email or you, know, you couldn't reproduce the letter um, by Xerox copy, someone would just read it. And he was reading to a mixed crowd. You had some people who were part of this rebellion and some people who were spiritually minded who could help those people out. And I guess you could almost say that step one was happening when Paul was there before live in the flesh with the church, right? As the church planner, it says in verse 11, he had heard that some among you walk in idleness. But before that, in verse 10, he said that he was giving the command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So in other words, when he was with them, he was commanding people, part of step one, Hey, look, if you're not working, you don't, need to eat. You, you don't need to be part of the love feast today. You need to get a job. And he was doing that, and he was modeling what it meant to work and to, to, to make your own money. He was doing that. He was living it out, but he was living out step one. And really, as we go into verse 13, someone who would be hearing this letter once again with full apostolic authority that's coming down to them, that person privately could repent. As if Paul himself is confronting them one more time privately through the letter. It's part of the dynamic, part of what's going on. The church was called at the same time, in general, not to grow weary, but to be willing to to follow through and help these people out that needed to be restored. There's also another sense to doing good here in verse 13. Don't grow weary in doing good. It's the idea that, you know what? There are some people in the congregation and perhaps in the network of people around Thessalonica that need to eat legitimately, like we just talked about at Mountain View. There's a legitimate need to, to feed people who are in need. We shouldn't let people go, go hungry. John Calvin was one of the commentators I read this week that just said, look, this means that the church, in the midst of the, the call to, to, to hold the line on people who were lazy, that shouldn't undo the command to reach out to the poor and needy that definitely need food at the same time. Matthew 25 is where Jesus said, if you've done it unto the least of these, those who are hungry, you've done it unto me. At the same time, the church should not grow cynical or weary with people who were abusing others, who were sponging off of others. And it's a call to keep our hearts, as the Puritan Richard Sibbs put it, in warm spiritual exercise. That's part of what we're doing right now. We're opening ourselves up, our hearts up to the word of God to keep it warm. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's a call to, as I mentioned before, Galatians 6.1, to restore people in a spirit of gentleness. You know, we're not called to be the Gestapo or... The, the police, right, in the body of Christ. We're not going out as heresy hunters, headhunters, or, or people who are trying to overly scrutinize other people. We're just trying to be available, right, as the body of Christ for each other. Galatians 6.1 again, it says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, any kind of sin, you who are spiritual, those who are spiritually minded, need to go to that erring brother to restore him, in a spirit of gentleness, all the while keeping watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. You don't want to be dragged into the same sin, right? But at the same time, it's our responsibility to be all about step one. I've heard it said, step one should be going on all the time, should it not? It should be going on all the time. At some level, we need to be in a community with each other 
where we are willing to bring up sin issues. And the more that you have transparent relationships, the, the easier step one goes. <laughs> because it's easier to say, you know what? Have you ever been called on the carpet with something? An attitude, something that might be called a lesser sin, but you go, man, I get that. I didn't see that in my life before, but now I do. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of my life in that way. That's step one. Step two. Step two. Go with someone else to restore your brother or sister. Going with someone else. Verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Let's stop there. It's going with somebody else. Remember, Paul, he's written this letter. It's inspired And he's saying that there's going to be some people who are idle in the church who are going to buck the system. They're not going to budge. He's saying that you should go as a group and restore that person. He's commanding involvement in the lives of the people. And in essence, Paul is saying, look, I was there. I confronted people. If you don't work, you shouldn't eat. And, and now I'm writing a letter, and this is still part of my step one, but really I'm offering help to rally the troops to be part of step two, to be part of step two. Maybe you've been in step one with somebody, and you've just stopped. You ever thought of that? You say, I don't know what to do with that person. Perhaps you should get somebody else that you respect, who's spiritually minded, and have a conversation with that person again. And just sit down with them and try to compel them. Try to work with them. Because this is God's means for biblical restoration. Again, I'm not trying to overly script how that should look in your life. But it is a biblical process that Jesus gave to us. Step three. Step three. Go before the church to restore your brother or sister. And again, this is very public. But I'm responding to verse 14 where it says, take note of that person. Take note of that person. Could be that the elders at this point in the process are writing that person down on a prayer list. That we're now making a concerted effort to pray for a person. That their heart will be loosed and opened up to the gospel and that they would be restored. It's formal now. It's what 1 Corinthians 5, 11 talks about. In 1 Corinthians 5... Paul was bearing his heart to the church saying, look, there are people in the church who are being sexually immoral and they're doing things that reach a level that are beyond what the pagan Gentiles are a part of. I mean, there's idolatrous people who don't know the Lord and this is happening in the church and it's wicked and it's, it's inner family stuff and it's, and it's something where we need to call a person by Um, their name and say they are now called a so-called brother as the new american standard version puts it they're a person who is a brother in christ but their life is not matching up with their profession this is where it becomes formal and i think sometimes we say man that seems so cruel but the demand that's placed on church discipline or biblical restoration when it goes public is this It's got to be done in a spirit of humility, gentleness, and Galatians 6.1 would say each one looking to your own self with a spirit of self-examination, a heart of restoration, a desire to bring people back right. That's what this is all about. It's to get people to where that lady was that I first mentioned, where she's in full confession. She's wide open. I've seen it happen. I've seen a young man come to the elders and say, listen, you don't know what I've been a part of, but I've come to the end of myself and I'm repenting. I've seen it. I've seen it happen. I've seen young women come in, in meetings and say, it's, I, I need to repent. I need to stop this sin and you need to know about it. I've seen restoration happen publicly and on private levels and it's powerful. But sometimes it takes this level of accountability. One writer put it this way. He said, there are some people who are incapable of repenting without exposure. They're just locked in. And maybe we have the answer for certain people, but we just aren't willing to go there sometimes. Step four. Step four, go outside the church to restore your brother 
or sister. We find this at the end of verse 14 going into 15. It says, and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Let's stop there. This kind of looks back to verse 6 where it says to keep away from a brother who's in that idle phase, that lazy, out-of-control phase. You're, you're making some separation there in verse 6. Maybe you're not fellowshipping as much with that person. You're not acting like things are totally normal with that person. But this step now in verse 14 is talking about step 4 in church discipline, where you literally instruct a person that they are now no longer part of the local church. They are outside of the church until they would repent The word for have nothing to do with is literally do not mix it up with that person. Do not mingle with that person. Do not um, have common Christian fellowship with that person. It's more than what verse 6 is saying. It's removal. And it's to create an effect. It's so that that person will be ashamed. Say, what in the world is going on here? You want someone to be ashamed of their sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. The original language is that a person would, would turn inside out. You want a person's heart to be wrung out for their own good. You're really calling a person to, to look inward because they're now separated from the privileges they once had. It's, it's very similar to parenting, right? Where if you're unwilling to take away certain privileges, then if you have a rebellious teenager they might just continue to spin out and say, look, I'm going to nurse my own sin in my heart and I'll still enjoy all the rights and privileges of my household. I'll still have the keys of the car. I'll still have this. I'll still have that. I'll still be able to run with those friends, you know, because I can kind of make my case and everything is just going to be platonic and, you know, quasi normal in the household. And a good parent instead will say, no, I'm going to take this privilege from you for now take this privilege from you for now. Things are not normal. Things are not reconciled yet. You need to think. You need to consider. You need to examine your heart. And slowly but surely, oftentimes, a person will come to the end of themselves and they'll say, you know what? (laughs) It was better when things were right. And the privileges were not something that I was entitled to have, but there's such joyful things for me to have in my family. And it's the same thing with the church. Church discipline, according to uh, one of my former professors, Dick Mayhew, um, has broader effects than that. And he's taking them from the Bible to deal with sin in the church before Christ. um, You're doing it before Christ has to step in and do it personally. Revelation 2 and 3, all of those churches that he was warning and, and even some declaring Ichabod over. Number two, to publicly warn the church is to sober the church regarding sin in general. 1 Timothy 5.20 says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. This kind of message and this kind of action, it's a sobering message for the church. Because when you see someone that's brought publicly before the church, you recognize that, man, but by the grace of God, that could be me. I am three decisions away from that being me and It's not beyond me to rationalize why I did it and to run and people come and I I rebuff them and then all of a sudden they're they're willing to bring my name up front. That's what 1 Timothy 5 is talking about. That kind of godly fear. It's also to prevent desecrating the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians 11, to restore unhindered fellowship, Galatians 6.1, that we've talked about already. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5 puts it this way. Paul was calling for that sexually immoral person to be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Does that sound severe? That sounds more severe than even a public announcement to me. But really, what is Satan's realm? Satan's realm is the world. It's, he's the prince of the power of the air. He's the God, lowercase of G. He's the lowercase G, God of this world. And when you, when you say, look, you need to now be separate from us as a local church. You can't worship with us now until you repent. You're delivering that person over to the world's goods and the world's way of satisfying the soul. And, and a person, hopefully, as a believer, comes to the end of themselves where they try to replace their fellowship with worldly people. They try to replace taking the Lord's Supper with taking drugs or, or 
basically replacing God with cheap substitutes that are idols from the world and they find them completely unsatisfying ultimately, right? And if you ever met met someone that's hit rock bottom and repented, you know they ultimately came to themselves and thought, this is not working out. I need gospel fellowship once again. We find this in the story of the prodigal son, right? Luke 15, verses 14 through 17. The famine arose after he had spent all, this young son had spent all of his inheritance on Satan's realm, on Satan's goods, and they became unsatisfying and his wealth was fleeting. And all of a sudden he's feeding pigs as his job and he's longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. And then verse 17 begins with these beautiful words. But when he came to himself. Right? That's what we want. That's what we want for our own lives. Right? We don't want to be trapped in our sins or our sin patterns. We want God by his Holy Spirit to wake us up. So that we don't have to be part of step one, step two, or step three, or step four. We want to come to ourselves. And that's what this young man did. He came to himself. And I love how the story plays out because when he went back to his father, because he said, maybe my father will just take me back as a hireling. At least they get fed. He's coming back humbly and meek. He's at the end of himself. He's not defending himself. He's not justifying what he did. He's not talking in terms of entitlements. He's throwing himself on the mercy of his father. And his father is seen as running to him to embrace him, right? That's the spirit of biblical restoration. The only reason why you you tell the whole church to go pursue somebody is because everybody becomes involved in pursuing the one sheep out of the 99 for restoration. To envelop a person with love and grace yet again. Verse 15. Do not regard him as an enemy. 2 Thessalonians 3. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. What's the spirit of, of restoration? When somebody is put outside of the church, you still regard them as a brother in Christ. I mean, Matthew 18, it definitely says that we are to treat them as if they are a Gentile. But I think this verse also sort of teases that idea out where we're supposed to say, I'm holding out hope for that person, that they are a genuine brother or sister after all, and that they would come back. We don't give them all of the privileges of the church or any of the privileges, but we seek that person out not as an enemy. We're not cynics. We're not saying, I declare anathema on this person. We're not, we're not the judge of that person. That's up to God. He's the one binding and loosing in heaven. We leave that to him. We have a heart for that person who has walked away from the Lord, and we hold out hope that that person is a brother or sister in Christ. You get it? And we leave the Lord on his throne as judge not ourselves. We're not going on a witch hunt. We're not pronouncing anathema. We're not treating people like, oh, you're an enemy. This is all just business. We have a heart for that person. And we want them to be in fellowship once again. What does Paul do at the very end here? The very end, he just ends with a prayer. And the prayer is his benediction, but it's a way of him pastoring the church to say, I want you to be at peace. I want this to be active in the church. So he just breaks out into a benediction prayer. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Just like he's in the midst of church discipline where two or three are gathered, his special presence. He's praying the Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. And he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Do you want a few points of application? I said last hour that if I didn't give these, I'd be called up on church discipline. So here we go. All right. Even though we're after the hour, take home points. Number one, restoration meant some level of community. Think about that. When you see people restored, they're restored in the context of transparent relationship. You expect to grow through transparent relationships. 
That's what makes church discipline or biblical restoration work is it comes through the context of knowing people. They know your sin. You're not going to be called on the carpet if you don't know anybody. And you're not going to be able to help anybody if you don't know them. So it's important to get to know people in the context of the gospel. Number two, restoration meant some level of separation. In other words, you can't expect to grow when you're ignoring sin. Bad company corrupts good morals. Sometimes some healthy separation breeds conversations for restoration. You, you can't ignore sin if you're going to be part of the process of restoring people. Number three, restoration meant some level of obedience. Matthew 18 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 is non-negotiable. This is what we are to be a part of. It's being obedient. It's being willing to talk about sin as a normal and regular part of our conversations. The more normal and natural it is to ask someone how they're doing spiritually, how's their life, you know, one-on-one conversations around a cup of coffee where you really zero in on something, anger, you zero in on lust, you zero in on, on how someone's handling their money, you zero in on anything, and you begin to talk about it, and that all of a sudden introduces a step one process, and that's just part of normal fellowship in the Christian conversation. It's part of how restoration comes through community. It's obedience to do this. Number four, restoration means extraordinary levels of joy. Want joy in your life? You be part of this. Seeing someone restored is the height of Christian joy. I see this exampled in the parable in Luke 15. It precedes the parable of the prodigal son, but in Luke 15, 4 through 7, Jesus is teaching, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Now watch this. Verse 5. When he has found it, it, he lays it on his shoulders, what? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. This is how we find joy in our lives. We, we, we restore people. We see restoration. We pray for it. Verse 6, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. Rejoice. I found the sheep that was lost. Number Verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Repentance, restoration equals joy. This is, this is Christian living. This isn't just the exception in our Christian lives. This is part and parcel of who we are and what we're all about. This is how we, we adorn ourselves with gospel doctrine, with truth. This is how we wear the gospel. This is how we live and breathe the gospel because we believe the gospel is changing us and can change other people. That's why Paul commands that we put it into play. Let's obey his commands with joy for the purpose of rejoicing as we see biblical restoration. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time in your word, time to sink our teeth deeply into one of your letters, one more of your letters in 2 Thessalonians. We thank you for this journey and teaching.